who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested, and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android, or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. All righty. Hey there, Madigan. Oh, hey. So today is a twofer. We usually split up our episodes and do like one on a Thursday night and then one on like a Sunday morning. But we are going to do, we're going to do it old school the way we used to and do them back to back. Yep. It's just like the old days when we could be in the same room with each other, you know? Yeah. Except not at all. Do you remember (laughs) the last time we recorded together? I remember I didn't take my microphone and we were like okay well maybe there's like one more week of us being able to get together before shit goes right. to hell and yes. then it was like the next day I was like can I yes. go pick up my microphone <laughs> I'd had a feeling I remember because I, I had a feeling when you were over here recording I was like maybe take your microphone just in case like I was like take it just in case and then um you know it just slipped your mind whenever yeah. you left or whatever which and then, is what like, always happens with me <laughs> it was literally the next day that the governor was like yeah we're shutting down we're not seeing anyone so you drove by and I came and like dropped it off and you were sick but not from covid yeah and so uh, i remember like even though people had weren't people were freaking out okay because that was the time whenever like nobody knew anything (laughs) yeah and and like grocery stores were totally shut down and there were the big long lines but still like i we were gonna give each other a hug like when i gave you the microphone but you were like i'm sick don't hug me yeah exactly (laughs) it wasn't covid it wasn't covid yeah but i'm still just like don't fucking hug me just in case like i know i don't have covid but my god don't get sick right now and weaken that immune system yeah oh my gosh it just feels like forever ago it was i mean it was like it isn't was. that crazy because my so my birthday's in March yeah my birthday was the first weekend that we were fully on lockdown mm-hmm. um and my half birthday is in September so it has been almost six months yep so yeah. that's that's what's up that is what's up yeah it's it's crazy I feel like I have that discussion with Max just about every day where you know time is going so slowly yet so quickly at the same time and everything 
blends together. Like I don't, I have a very hard time telling people when things happened because it all seems like the same month or the same time. It's just like 2020 is just its own. It's like a watercolor of just like everything is meshed up. Yeah, there's no months, there's no seasons, there's no anything. We're just living in 2020 and it's a Yeah, the only reason we know there are seasons is because it's hot as balls here. I know you guys are probably sick of us <sighs> saying how hot it is, but it is really hot. And I just heard today that Dunkin' Donuts has already released their pumpkin spice what? for the season. And I'm like, you guys, it's 100 degrees. Why? That's <laughs> insane. I was just thinking, though, because I worked at Starbucks during the holiday season, and I love all the holiday Starbucks stuff. I'm too. really looking forward to their pumpkin cream cheese muffin. I hope they get it again this year here we go I get a pumpkin spice latte and a (laughs) pumpkin cream cheese muffin and I'm not even like a sweet coffee drinker but I love I just get one pump of pumpkin spice in my latte that's all I need it's perfect I'm very excited for fall actually I'm kind of excited for fall although I just got a lot of really cute summer clothes and I'm kind of like I don't want to stop wearing my (laughs) cute like (laughs) summer dresses that I I got This is the first summer in years that I have not bought a new swimsuit because I am a swimsuit addict. Like I have like, I don't know, maybe 15 swimsuits. Like I have a lot of swimsuits. Oh my gosh. And I buy new ones every year and I didn't this year because what are we doing? I mean, I hang out by my pool, but other than that, it's like I'm not going anywhere yeah I think for me just because I still have to get dressed every day it's definitely like I've still kept up with some of my shopping behaviors just because like you know I used to be one of those people that could stay if I had a day off I could just stay in my pajamas all day I would never get changed unless I like showered or you know had to go somewhere but if I wasn't leaving the house I would just stay in my like chill clothes and now I really like getting up in the morning and getting dressed even if I don't have anywhere to go I just like feeling put together and I found I've been going on Poshmark like crazy where I can get like new clothes for like 10-15 bucks see that's good because I'm about to blow my entire paycheck on Fabletics because like all I'm doing is living in like workout clothes (laughs) because I'm like I feel put together first of all I am working out now so I'm not just strictly athlete wear but I (laughs) that's why I can't I feel like such a like a traitor if I buy like I can't buy athleisure wear because even if you're not working out you should because it feels like upscaled pajamas you know what I mean where it's like you feel put together especially if you're in like a matching set but you are still in stretchy comfy clothes see for me that's how I am that's how I am with dresses with like light like short sundresses just very thin nothing special my thighs rub together it's a problem oh yeah I just for (laughs) me it's like it feels like I'm just wearing barely anything like I wear just the thinnest dresses I can find without them being see-through I love a house dress yeah oh I have so many but no nothing's a house dress anymore and nothing is just an outside thing everything is everything now so that's right welcome to 2020 that's how we do it here (laughs) well now we rambled for about five and a half minutes let's get this episode started let's do it so I wanted to start off actually by saying that what sparked our interest in doing this topic this is something that had never been on my mind to do as an episode topic but is very much a part of my lived experience, especially not only as a black woman, but also as a actor. Uh, I cannot tell you the number of times my mom 
God bless her, she means well. Um, and I know exactly what she's saying, and it's not her fault for thinking these things, but, you know, she will watch all those Hallmark movies at Christmas, and she'll be like, Keegan, why aren't you in these Hallmark movies? She's like, it's never Aww. the... She's like, because... And this is what she told me. She's like, you should be in these Hallmark movies because they always have a black friend. They always Aww. have a black friend, and you could, you could be that. That could be your role. Yeah, I so, totally see what your mom is going for because especially like having you know being an actor as well and going through all of that I used to get obviously not the black best friend but I used to always get that I am not an ingenue I'm not a leading lady I'm like the quirky sidekick which is literally what I felt like my entire life to all my beautiful blonde best friends that I've had throughout my life I'm like great thanks now I won't even be cast as the leading lady fine right I mean and we could have an entire episode talking about um, typecasting and all of those things those issues that exist specifically for women for everyone but specifically for women uh, within Hollywood and that industry absolutely but we saw or I posted to my stories I want to give her credit so there was a kind of like Instagram slideshow that was like let's talk about the black best friend mm-hmm. and it was posted by a person named by Sara so B-Y-S-A-H-R-A if you want to go check out their page um, is it Sara or Sarah it is Sara. So okay. S A H R A. Oh, I see. I thought I never mind. <laughs> yeah, so Sara. Um yeah, so definitely go and check out their page. There's really cool stuff on that page and that is what sparked our idea or interest in doing this topic cuz I put it in my stories and then Madigan wrote in and was wrote into me, wrote into me. Yep. In my DMs. I'm like, Keegan, I'm such a big fan. You know, it would be a really great idea for an episode talking about the black best friend. (laughs) But that, I mean, but that is what you said. It Uh, is what I said, but I didn't write in as a fan, although I am a big fan of yours. Thank you so much. (laughs) Okay, so that is what we're going to be talking about today. And my notes, uh, while they are centered around the black best friend, in my opinion, that black best friend stereotype also very closely intersects with the sassy black woman, angry black woman. The magical Negro also, I feel like. Those things will come in um, by Sarah also does have a slideshow on the magical Negro Mm -hmm. specifically, if you want to check that out. But I'm going to be talking or we're going to be talking about kind of all of those things they're referred they're referred to as all of those things and they do kind of work hand in hand yeah exactly and I wanted to start this episode with a little bit of another discussion that I think just kind of ties into the context of what it means to be or have a black best friend what that means in society uh, the defenses that a lot of white people use. Uh, so this is something that uh, was Why very... white people have defenses, I don't understand. About uh, yeah. Something that really doesn't, is not theirs to get in up in arms about. 100%. And if you all listen to our episode that we did, our last full-length episode on Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, we talk about this a lot with Joe Biden, you know, talking about how he worked in an all-black swimming pool growing up, so he felt like he was involved in the civil rights movement, even though... He really wasn't involved. He was just working at an all-black swimming pool. He was just there. He was just there. there, And and I think that that's so amazing that you bring him up. I think it's kind of perfect, or you bring that story up, because 
that is exactly kind of what the black breast friend is there to do, where it's just like just by being in proximity, we're supposed to believe that the white protagonist is a good person. Right. And that's exactly how we viewed Biden. We have had this very picturesque view of Biden for so long because he was Obama's VP and we love Obama. So there is kind of this weird association as well with that friendship that I find is interesting. And I didn't even write anything about that in my notes. That was just off the top of my head no it's perfect. <laughs> actually I actually read which is a good time for me to tell you my sources so okay. I, I got stuff on tvtropes.org the mm-hmm. a Guardian article Afropunk and a Bartleby essay and in um, one of the things I didn't write down I think it's tvtropes.org maybe they were talking about how giving your hero a best friend from a different ethnicity tells the audience that he or she is relaxed about race and welcoming to all yes. and you get that perceived cool um, factor that comes from being close to a minority community and when talking about Joe Biden that's exactly what it is it's like we're supposed to believe that like oh see look how like comfortable he is around race and look how cool he is because he has a cool black best friend right. in Barack Obama. You right. Know? So why this is so problematic is because it doesn't really put importance on personal relationships between a white and a black friend. Uh, the reason that this trope and this defense you know, it doesn't work is because in order to truly have a close personal friendship with somebody, no matter what their race or background is, you, you know, you get into those deep conversations and those deep personal conversations. And this article that I was reading from, I believe this was the LA Times, I didn't write it next to here, but they were talking about how, you know, when the white friend refuses to have blunt conversations about race and fails to acknowledge their racial differences, it is not only just harming their friendship but it's harming their black friend it's not giving them it's not fulfilling the friendship in the way that it should be so that was one of the well, first points that yeah they made. it's almost never even brought up it's like we're supposed to just believe and very often especially if it's female relationships uh, that you have this black friend who has this very sassy quality who comes in with the comedic quips um, who's never actually involved in any of the action typically and so we're supposed to believe that this is your best friend but you don't ever get invested in her life or his life in any kind of real way exactly in in that by sarah uh slideshow she has a slide that says don't uh, but wait don't you want more black characters why is this bad in that they say black best friend characters exist solely for the development of the white character and are never given a chance to develop themselves and this reduces blackness to a mere prop reinforcing the idea that center stage is reserved for white people and that black characters are unworthy of having developed storylines and that is true in our lives that's not just true in a writing room or in a casting office it's true everywhere because our society constantly gives us messages that whiteness is ideal so even when that white and person default. yes it is if you know we've talked about this before you know, when reading a book uh, and they don't describe 
a person as being typically, you know, black, or if they don't say that they're black in the book, you will automatically assume that the character is white. Um, so it does give the the white friend this false sense of superiority. And that is kind of what this comes from. It, it's kind of like, you know, that white saviorism at times. Um, it's, it's very much like an accessory Yes, I read it that it was the cinematic equivalent to saying some of my best friends are black. Exactly. Right? Whereas like not only is it an accessory, but it's also oftentimes, especially, you know, we talked about female characters, but with male characters and friendships, it is oftentimes an excuse for there to be a lot of maybe a lot of black bad guys in the movie or, or TV show. And it's deemed OK because the white protagonist fighting the black bad guys has a black sidekick. Right. So it kind of like okays the entire situation and doesn't make you have to look at it any deeper than that because we are assuming that a black person is signing off or co-signing exactly. on whatever's happening. Exactly. So then as the viewer, we don't have to question what's going on because we assume that everybody is okay with whatever's going on. Right. Yeah. And one of the things this article talks about is that many times while a white person does discuss racism with their black friend, instead of listening and supporting, they make the conversation about themselves. And this is something that I point out in myself constantly. I never try to make things about myself, but I must have learned somewhere along the way that, you know, relating to people means sharing your experiences. And that's something that, like, in my adult life, I've worked really hard to shut up and listen because I can talk all day. And I think I've gotten much better at it of like, I've always wanted to know what people had to say. I've never meant for it to be like I didn't care, but I've wanted to make sure that especially with, you know, the people closest in my life that I'm not talking over them and make sure that, you know, they have the floor whenever they need anything from me. So while that's important, if you are in, you know, an interracial friendship, it's always just important in general to just shut up and listen to what the person has to say. I am the same way. I do the same kind of thing. Like, I do think that it is part of what was ingrained in us as far as like learning to be conversationalists yeah. is to find things to communicate about. And very often for a lot of people, I feel like that means finding parallels in our experiences, right. which then sometimes means talking about myself because then I talk about my own experiences. And it's something that I too have had to be conscious of and try and stop doing. Cause yeah. it's, it's natural for a lot of people. Yeah, it's it's definitely something I have to remind myself of a lot because I am such a talker. And something you brought up uh, that I think is more true when we're looking at the male friendships in TVs, TV and movies that we see the white friend getting like a little too familiar. It starts to get to a point where they're maybe starting to kind of be ingrained in the group a little too much and it's starting to a get of, racist. A lot of fist bumps. Yeah, there's a lot of fist bumps. There's a lot of like slang terms there's that a lot maybe of, shouldn't exist. Yeah, there's a lot of like black scent being put on. There's a lot mm -hmm. of, you know, there's this thing about, you know, the white guy hanging out with a group of black guys. You know what I mean? That's this funny thing that we see a lot in movies. Right. And these things are also harmful in real life because I think a lot of black people can recognize or, you know, other minorities, absolutely, probably members of the LGBTQ community, uh, you know, Latinx community. I feel like 
very often because of these portrayals on screen and these portrayals of these friendships that white people might have a certain expectation about what being friends with you is going to be like. Exactly. And then you and as a person of color or like a minority person, a person from a minority group, you're an individual, you're not a monolith, you're not mm-hmm. a stereotype and you can feel sometimes when you feel like the other person isn't getting what they expected out of you. You're not black enough. You're not what they expected. Right. They wanted to add you to their deck of cool friends. Yeah. You know what I mean? And um, that that's part of why all of this stuff is kind of harmful. It's incredibly harmful. And that's why I felt it so important to talk about the the real stuff too. So from that LA Times article, there was another article from theroot.com that is entitled Seven Rules for White People with Black Friends. And it's very like it's kind of like a parody article. There's lots of funny stuff in it, but I didn't write any I of the love funny the stuff root. down. Do you know who wrote it? I wrote it down somewhere. Let okay, it's okay if you don't know, but um, our friend Jay, who has the podcast, The Extraordinary It was Negroes, not Jay. It, w- it was not Jay? It was okay. Michael Harriet. There we go. Because he writes for The Root all the time. Does and he? it sounds like something that he would write. Yeah, he's a writer for The Root. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, this is, it was great. It was super funny, but I, you know, kind of focused on the realness that was hidden beneath the humor. So there are seven rules. Number one is know the line. Know that there are some black things you can't do, no matter how close you are to your black friend. And so mm-hmm. that's kind of what I word was, is off the table. Yeah, you cannot say. And that's actually one of the rules here. I believe that's number four. So I'll skip ahead. Saying the N-word. He says, there's only two times when saying the N-word is appropriate. And I was like, what? <laughs> so this is what yeah. he says. If the word is being discussed, which I, even for me, I'm kind of like, I wouldn't personally say it I still think it's unnecessary to say it when you could you just, could say, just the say the n-word exactly yeah. and then the other time he said that it's acceptable is if you are acting in a legitimate movie or a play or artistic production in some way not just on like YouTube or I was about to say Vine but I guess TikTok um, <laughs> gosh we're old <laughs> I know right I was Vine <laughs> Vine oh my god what is it 2013 what um so and that makes a lot of sense to me because i've talked about this on the show when i was in the the play hair i had to say that word twice and one time completely by myself and when it was in the group i never said it unless it was for the show and then when i had to say it by myself i had that friend that like wouldn't cut me off so i was supposed to just say the beginning of it and then he cut me off and he wouldn't cut me off and I got very mad at him in rehearsal one day. Right. If he was supposed to cut you off, then he should have. Yeah. But and, I, and he was I a black say, man. He thought it was funny to make me like, I think he thought it was funny to make me say it. I and don't I, think it's funny. I don't think it's funny either. It just, and I, I just don't ever want to say, I just don't ever, I'm like, my phone hears everything. Even if it's taken out of context, you know, what if in 40 years from now, they're like, Madigan Haggerty like says the n-word right but I mean there is a time and place and I feel like it has absolutely been used incorrectly Quentin Tarantino I'm looking at you because I really do feel like Quentin Tarantino so excessive it's excessive and unnecessary like I enjoy some of his movies but I do think he is problematic and he uses his platform as a writer going off on a tangent to sometimes get away with things that he should not get away with. And yeah. using the N-word is one of those things. However, 
I do believe just like um, any other kind of traumatic story that is being told, like if you're covering the Holocaust, somebody has to play a concentration camp um, guard, you know, yeah. like there are things that have to be done in movies, in art, uh, in order to tell a story or get a point across. And if that's the case, then that is different. But yes, in your day to day life, as a white person or a non-black um, person of color, you should not be using that word no. under really any circumstances. Not you don't even need if to it's sing it in, in a, song. a goddamn song. I mean, we right. we mentioned, I think, Hannah Brown very, very briefly when that whole thing went down during the pandemic when she... Uh, there was like an Instagram video or a TikTok video of her where she said the N-word. She should have known better. And she, she should have known better. better. And she, I mean, luckily it really seems like she is taking this time to educate herself. Uh, I hope that it's true. She's definitely put that out into the world. It seems like she's uh, learned from her experience, which I really hope she had. She kind of went on like radio silence for a while. I think she was aware of how badly she fucked up. And that's the thing, because I can't say that in my life, I've never said the word in a song because when I was young and stupid, I'm sure I did. You know yes, what I mean? But and it's, Hannah Brown is like 25 white blonde fr- from pretty, Alabama. From Alabama. Yeah. She doesn't get a pass. She doesn't get a pass. She doesn't get a and pass at all. But I, all I, I can, can hope is that her she apology. Yeah. Right. I can accept her apology because it did seem sincere. Uh, I can accept her apology while also saying that you have some deep seated shit you need to work through if you have this platform. You're from Alabama. Yeah. And you didn't know that this was going to be a thing that you shouldn't do on an Instagram live. Oh, yeah, well, you know and, what I and mean? uh, what's her name? The Rachel is that the other bachelorette? Mm-hmm. She went off on her for a mm-hmm. while, and there are people like she's being too hard on should've. Hannah. I'm like, no, no she should have gone off on her. And they, she had Hannah on her podcast, and I guess they had a lot of discussions outside of the public eye the two of them about stuff and I guess she told her off a whole lot and Hannah just kind of sat and listened to it and just Rachel tried. is not to be fucked with. She is not and to be she, fucked with at all. She is not your sassy black friend. She is not your black best friend. No. Nope. Okay. She <laughs> is not, not gonna, She's not going to fall into any of your stereotypes. I Best bachelorette ever. All right. So back to rule number two. Rule number two is be white, which I love. You know, don't try to be something you're not like. It's again, it's the white person that tries too hard you know it's the person that puts on you know the linguistic blackface he called it or tries to blend in with their surroundings when really it's like if I'm your friend I just want you to be who you are you don't have to be something else because of right. who and I am you know you know what um I think this brings up an interesting point as well is that like there are white people who grew up around black people okay right. like you watch eight mile right you you look at Eminem and you understand that like this isn't something that he's putting on necessarily. Right. However, he is still a person who grew up with a very white experience. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, even though he grew up around black people, um, maybe maybe in a lower socioeconomic class, he is not a black person. Yeah. Um, his experience is not as a black person. So you don't need to put on these airs of being something that you are not, um, especially very often what I see portrayed in the media and what I'm guessing that he's talking about with this linguistic blackface is white middle class to upper middle class, uh, usually guys. Sometimes it happens for women as well, although I feel like if they write a white 
female character that way it's supposed to be a joke or a character yes one of my examples was actually Lily from How I Met Your Mother and we did a whole How I Met Your Mother episode and why it's problematic so I can't remember if we mentioned this one but do you remember the episode where her friend from high school Michelle comes to visit and then no and she puts on a black scent like a real like really heavy and then and the whole gig like the whole gag of the whole like episode is that when Lily walks away and the gang talks to Michelle one-on-one she doesn't actually talk like that in real life she's like oh yeah Lily just brings that out in me it's just when they're together they both put on this facade and it's that weird again it's this weird like performative friendship like neither of them are being authentic with each other what I was going to say is, like, if that was a real-life scenario, which it's not, but, like, right. if it was a real-life scenario, to me, what that would be, if I'm looking at it from that perspective, it would be that the black friend is, again, trying to live up to the expectations of her white friend. Exactly. Because if she doesn't really talk like that. Why did she start talking like that? Did Lily start talking like that around her? And then the black friend, you know, kind of... a responsibility to have to live up to that expectation. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You are exactly right, my dear. Number three is know your role. And they talk about talking to the police for your friend in this uh, little section. And this was written a little over a year ago, I believe. So this is definitely important now. And they say that, you know, if you are... And this was written really funny. But he's like, you know, if you're pulled over by a cop, you know, you need to do all the talking while also conveying to your black friend in you know I sign language that like you know shut up and I'll do all the talking and I'm going to take care of you and things like that and I think that's really important and you know we do say this a lot is using your privilege for good if you are pulled over by a cop and you are with somebody from the black community you better turn that white privilege up and do what you can to make sure that your friends are safe right so here's the thing Colorblindness doesn't exist. We've discussed this. It doesn't exist, and it also doesn't exist in friendships. Mm-hmm. It doesn't exist in your relationships. If you are in an interracial partnership um, romantically with somebody, it also doesn't exist there. You cannot... You have to see and honor the person's color and what that means for them to move throughout the world in order to be their friend. So while you might be white and have white friends and you can look at it as just white friends and you might say, why do I have to treat my black friend any differently? It's because if you are a true friend to a person of color, specifically a black person, then you are not only a friend to them, you are also an advocate and an ally. You have to be. Yeah. And if you are not that, then you're not really their friend no, because you don't value them. Yeah. yeah, you don't value them really. Exactly. Number five, because we already did number four, is learn things. Take the opportunity to see the world through another perspective and educate yourself independently. So I like this, and I also think that this is something that uh, people can read wrong as well. Again, I'm going to bring up the Joe Biden situation. You know, there is, it is great to be able to look at the world through someone else's perspective but there has to be education behind it it can't be like a vacation for the day where you're what's life like on the other side or what's life like this way right we're not undercover bossing this situation exactly so if you're going to want to learn about another person's perspective it can't just be it can't just be about living in the within the same vicinity as them or going to their house and knowing their mom and things like that it does take 
education to truly understand. And sometimes, yes, being in the home and talking with, you know, families that are different than you is an education, but it is still important instead of you having to rely on them for information, getting information for yourself to make sure that you are, you know, being appropriate and, you know, not asking stupid questions. Honestly, that's always right. my and, biggest concern. And also, well, but here's the thing. True friendships. Yeah. <laughs> As someone who has been many a black best friend and oftentimes the only black friend in large groups of mostly white people. Hey, Midwest. I can, I can <laughs> say, yeah, I can say that uh, friendships do go both ways. They do. So like if I am your friend and you say something that I don't, like or offends me um, as a black person, I can say those things to you. I can educate you in that way. But what that means for the white friend in this scenario is that they need to take that, utilize it without getting in their feelings about it. Because if you are my friend, I should be able to be vulnerable and honest with you and say, hey, you know what, like what you said it wasn't okay and here is why it wasn't okay. You're my friend. I love you. I know that what you said, you didn't mean it the way that it came across. But as your friend, I need to let you know that it wasn't okay. And in return, as my friend, I need you to say, oh my gosh, thank you for letting me in on that. Of course. I will do better moving forward. Yeah. Like that's what we need as friends. And if you can't give that to your black friend, then you're not really their friend. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Wander with us into a world of magic. Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with and reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. We'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales. All right, I'm going to get through these last two. Uh, Number six is don't partake in cultural appropriation, which we've had a whole cultural appropriation episode. I think this kind of ties into... Just be white, be yourself, be who you are. You know, I see a lot of people that I know on Instagram, especially white women who date black men who Mm. partake in a lot of cultural appropriation. There's a girl I did background with that I literally had to mute her Instagram. I mean, I could just unfollow her. Like, we're not really, really close. I don't know why I muted her, but she's done like braids in her hair like full braids I sent you a picture of it like forever ago Mm -hmm. and she got them again and it's just it just makes me feel like I know it shouldn't make me feel uncomfortable but it does make me feel uncomfortable because it's like why are you posting this for everyone to see and why is no one calling you out on it does she have a black partner she does yeah okay so I honestly think this should go on our list of things to talk about because it comes up often. And that is the fetishization of black men. Yeah. Um, There is a huge sexual fetishization of black men. And I feel like what goes along with that is this idea of the free pass. You see it in friendships as well, but especially in romantic relationships, mostly with white women, with black men. You don't see it as often with white men and black women where they feel like they get a pass on whatever they decide to do. And it very much feels like they want to be in this relationship because it gives them that and pass. This is the same for and that pass. And also that um, it makes them more interesting. Yeah. And I feel like that oftentimes white people feel that way when they enter friendships with with people of color or people in the LGBTQ community. Oh, yeah. Community. I mean, look at the Kardashians. 
You know, Mm -hmm. it's like everybody that they come into contact with, everybody they've dated, they just appropriate from. You know what I mean? They don't have their own identities anymore. They feel like it makes them more interesting, which is a real issue because a lot of white people, the reason why cultural appropriation is such an issue specifically with white people and why they do it more than other people do it, um, other groups do it with, you know, other minority groups, is because in my experience... They feel like their culture is boring Mm -hmm. and they can glom on to another culture that they find to be more interesting. Right. And you can't rewrite your own history. Come on. (laughs) Right. And it's okay to, you know, admire someone else's culture, but it is not okay to decide that, you know what, my life isn't interesting enough, so I am going to date a black man because I think it's a personality trait and it makes me more interesting. Yeah, it's Uh, it's the same thing as people that say things like, you know, I only date black men or I only date Asian women. You know, it's that it's fetishizing and it's gross, insulting. And, you know, as someone who has been fetishized that way uh, and been with people who were like... often would mention that their girlfriend is black it's It's dehumanizing yeah in a way yeah because it it boils you down to one thing and again one part of you to bring it to bring it back to this like black best friend sassy black friend kind of trope that's oftentimes what it does it 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 makes the character one-dimensional it boils them down to one thing uh, and that is to be kind of the magical Negro who comes in and helps solve the white people's problems without ever having to examine any of your own issues. Or if you do examine the black best friend's issues, very often it is riddled with tragedy. <laughs> or it's still it's there in the story to still move the white character's story forward. Usually, even if it is tragedy, it's something that will maybe wake up the white character or make the white character realize something. It still, you know, plays into... Right, yeah. That the very goal of the, will, of the main character, you know? Yeah, that very often will happen as well. I mean, the black character in True Blood, it's been like years and years since I've watched that show, but I remember for the first little while, they like didn't look into her character pretty much at all. And then when they were like, hey, maybe we should develop this character more. I want to say her name was Tara or Tara or something. When they were like, let's inter- like let's develop her character more, everything about her life was a tragedy, Ugh. right? Like, it was just like she'd had, a ab- she'd suffered abuse, like sexual, physical abuse. Like, she just had a really dark storyline and not that those stories don't need to be told or they don't happen, but when that is, it's kind of like when we were talking about disclosure, right? Like, when that is the only information that is being taken in through the media, um, it makes it, if it didn't happen so often, then the occasional clumsy representation would be okay. And in that article I was referencing earlier, that's actually what he says. He says, back in the 80s, it was just a pleasant surprise to see a black character in a film or TV show who wasn't committing a crime. <laughs> it might be time for interracial friendships to move forward to the next level. Definitely. <laughs> well, I'm going to skip number seven because we're just going on for a while and it's not that important. But I also read something interesting about how the black friend as a buffer goes all the way back to slavery. So slave owners would paint a picture of harm Harmony and love between them and the enslaved that would justify their racial hierarchy. Mm-hmm. There was this guy named George F- 
Fitzhugh, who was a supporter of slavery, and he blamed the North for interfering, saying in 1854 that the white Southerner, quote, is the Negro's friend, his only friend. Okay, would you like to switch places, sir? Exactly. If you had, if you had the choice, would you switch places yeah. with your um, black enslaved person? Totally. Mm-hmm. And then after abolition, he like wrote this whole thing where he's just lamenting about the fact that he lost his black friends. And it's like, oh, oh boo-hoo. Poor fucking you, yeah. you piece of shit. Yeah, I mean, when I was looking a little bit into the history, I think this is from the Afropunk article I read, which is a very good article. Uh, I'll link it in the show notes. But it said, the whole sassy black woman or sassy black friend thing has its roots in the classic film eras of the 30s, 40s, and 50s when most black actresses could expect to play slaves, maids, and little else. Enter the mammy figure who would make sharp, witty comments Mm -hmm. in the background while glamorous white actors and actresses glided across the screen. And then they went on to point out how in 2011, The Help faced very intense criticism because once again, these black maids existed to, first of all, it was written by a white person. And then these black maids existed to catapult the white protagonist into a new stage in life while their lives remained static. So like the magical Negro um, and the black best friend, black domestics in film function to nurture and guide white characters. So that's kind of where this started, that mammy trope, black domestic trope. And I feel like it changes with uh, like assigned gender gender and age of the character. You know what I mean? I feel like if it's a man, it's typically the magical Negro. If it's a young woman, it's typically the black best friend. And then if you get older women, the older women it's like the mammy character, you know? And it mm-hmm. every time it always makes me think of Hattie McDaniel from... Um, Gone, Gone with, with the, the Wind. wind. Absolutely. I, I loved that movie as a kid. It's one that I cannot get through now. It's so long. But I would watch that on rainy days at my cabin. And... She was always my favorite because she was funny. And like, you know, now I look back and obviously that's a very problematic role, but also really wonderful because she was the first black woman to ever win an Oscar for that role. So which is incredible, but it's so multifaceted. Oh, yeah. It's still tied in with such racism. And she wasn't even able to like sit with the rest of the categories. Right. And she was able to win an Oscar because she played a role that was deemed to be acceptable by white America at that time. Which was this kind of um, slave character, mammy character, domestic character that was not that unhappy about her position. Oh, exactly. And that's the problem with Gone with the Wind. I didn't watch Gone with the Wind until I was like 13 or 14. And... By the time I watched it, I think I didn't watch it young enough because I realized when I was watching it that I was like, this is really fucked up. I yeah. mean, they have lines in that movie about how like, ah, oh, remember the good old days when Tara was in her full glory and we could hear the soft giggle of the Negroes in the in the slave yeah. quarters. And it's just like, what world are you oh, living? Yeah, it's, I mean, the main characters are racist pieces of shit. It's a whole, I mean, like, I can't get but through the But they're the, the protagonists, and you're supposed to root for you're them. You're supposed to root for them, exactly. But then also, you know, you are still supposed to root for this maid, but because she's, like, silly, you know what I mean? And happy. And happy. And happy in her position. Right, which kind of yeah. goes back to what that, you know, George guy was saying after 
abolition. So I wanted to talk about one character in particular because we had a whole Topanga episode and I think you and I could talk a lot about Angela Mm. because Mm. so Keegan and I, for those of you that don't know, we used to, I used to pick her up from work like almost every day and we would go back to your apartment and we would crochet and paint our nails and watch Boy Meets World. And mm-hmm. we were obsessed for like a whole summer. We just like binged right. I Boy still own the first four seasons on DVD. Yep, and that's you can what watch we did. the rest on Disney Plus. No. And we're not even getting paid by them. So <laughs> exactly. So we love Boy Meets World. So that's why I really wanted to bring Angela up to you because I think Angela is a very interesting character. And there's also been some new developments about uh, the actresses experiences on set and I also just found out that she was like way older than everybody else way older yeah yeah. I didn't realize look it she didn't she didn't so like Sean her you know who played her boyfriend the character Sean in Boy Meets World was like 17 in real life and she was like 26 or something crazy like that Mm -hmm. um but she Angela came in late in the season and she is there as her series sorry and she is Kind of like Topanga 2.0. She has even more wisdom and maturity than Topanga. She, you know, obviously becomes very close friends with her very quickly. And she becomes kind of the mom of the group in a way that kind mm-hmm. of overlooks all of these white bumbling idiots. You know what I mean? Kind of looking above right. it all. Right. Yeah. And, you know, at the time when I was watching it, and I haven't seen the later seasons of Boy Meets World, which is where Angela makes her appearances. You've um, never seen in- them? No, I have, oh but I haven't God, seen okay. them in quite a while. Okay. <laughs> so I, I can't speak on it with kind of like this adult feminist mindset, but I can say that when I was watching it initially, I thought that the representation was good. I was so excited to see a black woman well, and, and also an interracial re- relationship. Yeah. And it made me feel really good. But looking back on some of the moments that I do remember while I still am so grateful that I had this representation in one of my very favorite shows. Yeah, I mean, I I, do think that there's a lot of positive that came with Angela. It was just the fact that she was, like, the only black character except for the one other teacher that was only in it for a few seasons. mm -hmm. Um, I I think that that carries a lot of weight on the character's shoulders, which is going to probably go into what you... the examples you were thinking of. Right, well... It's a lot of weight, but also they didn't have to write her like this. Like they did. It's not even that she was written badly, but it is exactly what you were saying in that she she fell into this kind of like default mammy stereotype, for lack of a better term, because you had Eric who was older. Right. But still behaved like a child. Right. And so she is taking care of. Everybody, essentially, um, except for Topanga, which, again, I guess also speaks to the trope of, like, women being responsible and men being allowed to kind of, like, be perpetual man children. Yeah, the women Uh, have to grow up and the men don't. But I did appreciate, despite, you know, we, we can talk a little bit about her experiences on the set, but, like, I did appreciate that it did seem to me that the writers from what I remember, did actually try and maybe clumsily, but tried to, they never tried to make her white. They never tried to make her a white character. They did address the fact that she wasn't white. And one that I remember a lot is that she wrote a paper. She got an A on her paper where she's like, how to maintain black identity with three very white friends. Oh, I remember that now. 
yeah. So, I mean, I did appreciate that. But again, once again, we could talk, we haven't even given very many examples of black best friends, but they exist in everything. Oh, yeah. I mean, I have the Peanuts written down as an example. Franklin from the Char- Charlie Brown and the Peanuts. You've got Franklin. You've got Dion from Clueless. Yep. You've got Donald Faison's character in Clueless as well. Yep. You've got uh, uh, Corbin Blue and Monique Coleman's characters in High School Musical. Apparently, their names are Chad and Taylor. Oh, yes, because I did I did the stage version. Oh, yes, you Chad did? Chad and Taylor. Um, which, by the way, who wrote that? Because I've never met one black kid named Chad. I'm sure they I exist, I've, but I've never met one. I don't think I've ever met a black person named Taylor. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I have either, but I see that before I see a, a black Chad. That's, I don't think I've ever a met a black Chad. Maybe. It, it is... Um, then you've got Susie from the Rugrats. Oh, this you've got. We've got um, Michael Scott and Stanley's relationship from the uh, from the office. Problematic. Yes, that I mean it's it's one of those things you know because Michael Scott is um, portrayed Horrible. as just being this bumbling idiot. You have to kind of for, you're supposed to forgive him for his shortcomings because he's just stupid. That's like why. Yes, but that is fucked up. That so would never work. Up. It would never work now. As In an actual the office, office environment too. Can you imagine? Your boss treating no. someone like he treats Stanley and Oscar, or for that like matter? he treats Oscar exactly like yes. I we could go honestly. We should do a whole episode on problematic faves, The Office, because I <laughs> love The Office. Yeah, I think The Office is great, and I understand that it's satire and it's meant to be poking fun at at the fact that he's an idiot. But some people don't pick up on that, and they're just like, "What? Michael Scott can say racist shit, and it's funny. Yeah, so why, why can't, can't I, I say I, it? You know? Yeah. Um, another one that I had written is the inverted. BBF I wrote and that is that so Raven okay right I didn't even think of it that way but this was from the tvtropes.com website I mean but I would still I would still argue that even though she has a white best friend and it's black it's a black centered show right in that it's revolving around a black protagonist and a black family um, that Raven is still very much kind of a stereotypical sassy friend. Oh, 100%. She does lots of tongue clicks, lots of, um, you know, neck Moving twists. the head around, the snaps. Yes. Yeah, she definitely yes. still held that. Um, and then my other two favorite examples, uh, Wayne Brady from Whose Line Is It Anyway? Poor Wayne Brady. I love, I, I rewatch Whose Line all the time. It's a show for me when I'm sad that I can watch and always feel better. I also weirdly own that on DVD I for love some it. reason. I love how often Wayne Brady calls out the fact that he is the only black castmate and makes fun of his white castmates because it kind of is, it's, it's, uh, you know that, you know, Wayne Brady is obviously very talented, but it's also very jarring to see, you know, a whole group of white people. And then you see what we've been come to call the token black yeah. character. You yeah. Know? I mean, and with with someone like Ray- Wayne Brady, though, it also makes me wonder if is he he's poking fun on it. Uh, yeah. You know, poking fun at it. But at the same time, like we can laugh at it because Wayne is laughing at it. Right. But it kind of by him laughing at it and kind of like brushing it off, it kind of gives everyone else, i.e. white America, yeah. permission to brush it off as not a problem. Right. And it There's kind of is a problem that there was almost never, even when they would bring guests in, which they did every episode, 
and I love that show. Yeah. I'm not trying to like shit on it, but I am saying like, I do think that there is this expectation for kind of like funny song and dance black people to laugh at their own oppression. Right. And it, because it makes white audiences more, feel comfortable. more comfortable. There was a video that I saw very recently and it was a later season because it was Wayne Brady with Aisha Tyler. And there was something, mm-hmm. I can't remember what it was. Gosh, I have to find it. But it was it was actually a very it was a joke, you know, they were doing the show, but it was something really serious and I believe that it involved like police brutality. It's like people that would be safe with the yes. cops. Did oh, you see gosh, that? Yes. You know I'm talking about? I did. Yes, I did. I'll have to find it cuz it's it's very jarring because it's he's making a joke. He's doing it in a funny way, but also like the audience doesn't really know how to respond. Aisha Tyler is like, yeah, you know, and kind of laughing at how he's doing it. But well, it is, you know, that's a, that's another thing is like black people are always praised for, um, their humor, our humor, like, and black Twitter always kind of is very good at making light of racist situations or making memes out of it and making, making it funny. But, and and that's amazing. I fucking love that black people do that. I think it's incredible. But also, I don't think that it should be overlooked by white people that that is a coping mechanism right. that has been um, developed because of years of oppression. Right. And that's like, why I liked oftentimes, that. You know, it was yeah. it was set up as a joke, and then the punchline. Everybody was like, "It's not funny. <laughs> like it's just real right. and sad." You right. Know? So when it comes to like black best friends, uh, you know, sassy black friends, etc., they often act as kind of this spirit guide to white protagonists. Yeah. Very similarly to the way that the magical Negro trope does. And in that same vein, the way that they are a- able to kind of act that way is that the characters are so one dimensional that they don't appear to have anything going on in their own lives except for to coach white characters through their lives. Exactly. And in that way, like, so first of all, they're not fully, fully developed. And secondly, in the way that they're developed, because very often they are written by white writers directed by white people, uh, especially when it comes to the sassy black woman, sassy, angry black friend trope, they end up coming across as a caricature of a black person Definitely. or a caricature of a black woman instead of being this wholly, fully rounded <laughs> human being right. who has like interest, interests and problems of his or her own, you know, it ends up being all about the white person yeah. uh, with this added spice of black people. Right. So let's talk about the the damages that it does for, you know, children growing up watching these things. And, you know, for me, I think of the idea that, you know, I was always able to find somebody that I related to in every show, whether it be a cartoon or live action, there was always going to be a white character. And the biggest upset for me was that I never got to be the popular blonde character. I think I brought this up twice tonight. Um, You know, I always wanted to be the main character because she was like blonde and popular and pretty. And in real life, I always wanted to be that way. But I was like the sidekick, um, best friend character in that. But I was always able to find stories that I related to. So I don't really have that experience growing up. What was something, was that something that you were aware of growing up or is it something that you've been more aware of as you've gotten older? 
Absolutely. I mean, as somebody who has been acting my whole life, it was always something that I was very well aware of that my opportunities were going to be limited because it is less often, even on stage, even on stage. Where you it could be anybody. Where yeah, I mean, and I've been like the I've been like nominated for theater awards. The theater awards that I get nominated for are black best friends essentially always really our black best friends yes and i love those parts they're quirky they're fun part of it is because i don't necessarily look like a leading lady in a lot of ways so that's part of it i think you do but thank you i think you do too oh my god thank you um but like so that that is part of it but it's also largely because you know, and I'm getting ready to go and help start a, a black theater alliance for this reason, because growing up, it felt like I was never going to get leading roles. Right. My role was always going to be a side character, a supporting character. Um, I was never going to get leading character. So I, I've known that forever. And then in addition to that, you know, when we're talking about like real life kind of consequences beyond just the representation not being present, the representation that is present very often, especially for black women, black women are routinely portrayed in television and film as, you know, sassy and they do the neck rolls and they have the major attitude and they are labor labeled this like angry black woman and there have been studies done where most african-american women will say that they believe that these depictions on screen have real world consequences for them in their dating life their jobs their careers because of the representation of what that is on screen right so yes to answer your question i've been aware (laughs) of all of that my whole life right yeah Is there anything else that you want to talk about before we wrap up? Well, I kind of just wanted to wrap it up really with this again at by Sarah on Instagram. Uh, They kind of wrapped up their slides with something that I found to be, you know, just they, they said it really well. So they said, give every character depth and not only will you break free of the black best friend archetype, the story will be richer, realer, and more complex. And I think that that is so important beyond just for you and I who went to film school. You know what I mean? Beyond all of the other stuff, which is massively important that we have talked about, just in the interest of creating good art. For real. In the interest of creating good art, you need to allow every character to experience real depth so that the story can feel real right. and rich. Yeah, our the stories that we're watching on TV and in movies and reading in books should reflect real life. You know what I mean? Even if it is fiction, even if it is make-believe, you know, even in science fiction, there's so much that ties to humanity in real life. And exactly. so by having, you know, richer characters, it's only it's only going to help you. You know what I mean? Exactly. And, That's kind of, yeah. Like, why are you fighting it? Don't fight well, it. Because it's like this halfway, you know, it, there's, you know, we're giving you the diversity You know what I mean? Like, it just kind of feels like it's a handout in a way. So hopefully 
you know, we get more black writers in the writers' rooms, more black casting directors, we get more black authors, uh, just black artists in general, like, need to just start getting into those rooms somehow to get their voices heard because that's the only way that you're going to have a true mm-hmm. representation of your character is by having that experience behind it. Right. You need to consult somebody. If you're writing, if you're a, a white man and you are writing a black female character, you need to run that shit by at least one black woman. Oh, yeah. And in fact, I would say... If it's Ten an experience, sources. Yeah, if it's an experience that you have literally no familiarity with, you, because again, black people aren't monoliths, mm-hmm. so run that shit by a few black women and let them all give you notes and take all of that into consideration so that you can have just a better piece of media. It's important. We are no longer in the 70s, 80s, and 90s where we can just say, oh my gosh, what a relief it is that there are black people in this movie and that they're not drug dealers that they're actually friends to the main character we are far beyond it is more than that and we need to allow for that we do oh well i hope that you all enjoyed this episode i really did i'm glad that we did something nice and lighthearted, not too research heavy we just got to kind of chat and hang out so i hope that you all enjoyed listening to it if there's anything that you want to add go ahead and email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or direct message us on instagram at angry neighborhood feminist we also have a twitter that we sometimes use at yamp podcast y a n F podcast. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can rate and review us on the business page and chat with the other listeners in the group page. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps us out so much and we really appreciate it. And we also really appreciate it when you listen to us on Radio Public. It's a free way for you to listen and it helps us out just a little bit. All right. With all that being said, we encourage you to rate on. Bye. What does feminism mean to you? During Women's History Month, come explore feminism and how it's playing out in real life with season two of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I use my background in journalism and draw on women's life experiences to add to the conversation on topics that matter to fellow feminists like you. Now in its second season, listen to new episodes each month as we explore finding yourself through divorce, battling call-out culture, questioning our ideas about masculinity, and discovering why girls' confidence plummets in their preteens. Guests include Stephanie Kuntz, historian and author of Marriage, a History, April White, author of Divorce Colony, and Loretta Ross, professor on white supremacy and call-out culture at Smith College. Listen to Thread the Needle on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.